Welcome to One of Two Hundred. We're back this weekend to talk about politics and the media. I'm joined by my co-hosts and co-founders. Uh, how you doing, Philip? Good, man. Um, yeah, it's the weekend somehow, so it can't be that bad, right? <laughs> yeah, it can't be that bad. And how are you, Branka? Great. Never better. Enjoying a stay in New Zealand? I am, yeah. Um, yeah, it's too bad we haven't been able to do one of these uh, in person, um, but, but hopefully. Now the audio is, yeah, is garbage. Like, it's, it's too time. irritating. Oh, Jesus Christ, fuck. Okay. Um, uh, no, no, not your audio now. I mean, if we do it live. Oh. <laughs> I just assumed. Um, yeah, and you know what? Um, it's an assumption that uh, everyone should make all the time uh, if you're into podcast production, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We skipped a week last week. Uh, a bunch of stuff has happened this week. Um, and I want to start with talking about what's been happening with X, um, EPA and Tefata Order board person chair, uh, Rob Campbell. Yeah, a bit, bit of a weird situation in my opinion. Lots of people are across the spectrum have been saying, oh, there's nothing else Labour could really have done here. Stepped out of line, breached the, the code for, for people in the public service. Uh, and then didn't really back down, so they, they had to let him go. What did we think? I thought um, Henry Cook had a reasonably good piece about it for someone who's spent a lot of time in kind of gallery journal circles saying that, you know, everyone in the public sector is political, whether they want to admit it or not, and the choices they make are political, um, and the outcomes of those choices are more important than the the words that they use to make those points. Like, I think that's the kind of the fundamental starting point is like, you know, if you if you don't think that Treasury is political, like we have, a, we have a very fundamental difference about what we think like political bias means, right? Like just because there's a a level where um, according to the kind of niceties and civility kind of rules around uh, public service, it becomes uncomfortable when you attack a specific person and use verboten words like national party leader, as opposed to talking about like ideological quandaries, like uh, keeping interest rates and public debt low like for some reason that's an allowable political uh position to continually push for a generation whereas criti- criticizing like one person that's beyond the pale right I, i'm gonna be boringly conventional and, and say that uh i mean like his, his contention is that he was pushed out because uh he was butting heads with uh the government or co-governments and that they basically had a you know he had a, he had a target on his back and this is not really about the thing that he said but but that um, they they're using it as an excuse to get him out. I, I believe that's probably true. But also, if if you know that you have a target on your back that they want to get you out, I feel like what he did was kind of just a, a, a you know just shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, you know they're coming for you. I don't really know what the utility of making that post was aside from you know I guess uh, doing what many of us do and vent our frustration of various things on Twitter. Uh, this is Rob Campbell's version <laughs> of tweeting him his, his way through it. But yeah, I mean, it, it gave them an opening to, to, to get rid of him. Um, so, you know, I, I think his big mistake is he should have done what, what every, um, you know, Wellington bureaucrat does, which is, uh, don't, you know, uh, speak out about it on LinkedIn, just, uh, start leaking stuff constantly to, to reporters and <laughs> slowly undermine the government that way. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm partly joking, but yeah, I, I think um, it, it seems like there's general consensus that, that you know, he did he did breach his kind of, um, you know, the, the, the rules around impartiality uh, by by specifically, you know, 
talking about Nationals' plans uh, about this. Um, I think it's probably something it could have easily avoided. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is I think uh, on the whole, it seems like at the same time people say that he was a pretty effective person in his role and the person who's going to um, end up taking over for him is uh, probably going to be someone who's more of a yes man, um, you know, and, and, and who doesn't re-criticize the government. So overall, just a pretty unfortunate um incident you know but yeah I, I think we should also definitely criticize labor for clearly wanting to just get rid of someone who who generally is outspoken and, and tends to try to you know push them as well uh, as well as you know criticizing uh, the national party yeah i think you know we've seen labor party fight on stuff before um they could have fought on this i i like the interpretations of the rule and rob campbell gave them himself that meant he didn't really overstep his bounds because he wasn't talking about his areas um specifically um, and, you know, made as a private citizen kind of arguments, um, having an apology and uh, which apparently he made, um, although I've seen kind of competing uh, versions of that. Um, if they'd really wanted to keep him on, they would have found a way to do it. Uh, and, you know, it's fine. Like they, they can if they want him gone and just a good way to do it. I mean, whatever. I, I do feel like. It risks opening uh, the floodgates a little on what's permissible um, and what labor itself can be attacked for. Uh, we've already seen one example uh, from another crown agency um, about a guy's Twitter post where he called China an enemy state. Um, nothing has really come from there. It was in the Herald, like it was reported on, uh, but you know, there hasn't been like the same kind of blow up. And it was a far more incendiary, specific to his role kind of thing to say. So I'm interested to see how far National and ACT uh, are willing to push this uh, and whether Labour use the same expediency, use the same excuses or or reasoning um, in future cases where this might happen because they've, they've basically just said, oh, yeah, sorry, that's it. Um, you can't speak out about it. You have to be impartial, so you're gone. Okay, what what happens when you walk that back on the next one of these because it's someone you want to keep? You know, the, like I, 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 people have said, and I think it's a reasonable um, argument. Uh, they didn't want this to drag on. Uh, they didn't want to be uh, constantly under attack uh, by national uh, because they'd not shown strength or whatever you want to call it uh, by uh, firing Campbell. But I think it's just as likely that by rolling over so quickly, they end up with a range of these occurring kind of over the next few months uh, and also the opportunity for it to happen closer to the election campaign. I mean, if, if you stand up for it once and say, no, this one, in this case, it doesn't, it's not a problem. Sure, they can keep hitting you about it, but they just look like sore losers. I, and you don't have to engage in it. You say, no, nah. like we've seen this happen multiple times with MPs, right? MP apologizes, uh, and then media might ask about it again, like, oh, but this person did this. Do you really trust their apology or whatever? And like, no, that's already been dealt with. Um, God has apology, and we've moved on. So, you know, do, do we think that this is going to continue or or that Hepkins and Beryl have have kind of nipped this one in the bud? We're not going to see any further, further issues uh, in this. Yeah, look, I think that the Chinese, uh, the example about China being an enemy state is an is a interesting one. Because although we see that as more incendiary and much closer to 
kind of lighting an actual fire. I think probably a lot of mainstream uh, pundits and people in both Labour and National wouldn't see that as such a flagrant uh, line cross as they would uh, complaining about a leader of the National Party. Like that's the, the greatest crime you can commit is like attacking an individual at the top of the natural party of government, right? Because that's like, that's their milieu. That's where they're comfortable. Like, uh, you know, antagonizing an enemy state could actually cause problems. Like that's less of a problem to them. So that's what I mean about like, I don't care about Rod Campbell, right? I don't care about this exact situation. But as a as an example, like an exemplar of the way that ideology is weaponized by mainstream kind of people to maintain like the illusion of a neutral public service which continues to like work for capital and like the institutions as they function. I think that's like an interesting example, right? Because there are some things you can say and there are some things you can't say, but they're all ideological positions. Like it, it's, it's insanely damaging that, you know, MB continually activates against increasing the minimum wage. Like that's a, that's a partisan political position. And as much as labor wants an increased minimum wage and national wants a decreased minimum wage, like that is a political position. No, like high-powered people from MB are getting called out for having non-neutral political perspectives, right? I, I mean, I'm just I'm going to be boring again. Uh, I, I I think honestly, this is a, a really narrow technocratic thing, which mostly doesn't matter at all to to anyone um, for the most part. Again, you know, apparently he was pretty effective in his role, so so there, there's something to be lost. But but for the most part, you know, this is a this is one of those kind of things that obsesses the media. Um, and, and and politicians, but not really most average people. Um, I don't know if it's going to really lead to anything. Because the, the thing is, the, the, the thing that he's been hit on is specifically for kind of calling out the National Party in particularly kind of charged ways. And that's what sort of have, has meant to have reduced his impartiality. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's a, it's a fair point to point out that, you know, we accept all sorts of um, incendiary rhetoric around other issues. But uh, to me, that's distinct from the kind of really narrow question of impartiality. Um, if, if this other person had said, you know, China's a great threat and we need to you know, prepare for war with it or whatever, and by the way, uh, uh, the Green Party is... Um, is as weak and on China and <laughs> likely that will be conquered or something, you know, something along those lines, that would be in the, in the extremely narrow confines of this debate considered unacceptable. Uh, whereas, yeah, you can, you can totally call for civilizational warfare. Um, otherwise, as long as it's, you know, you're not, you know, sort of <laughs> reducing your impartiality uh, in, in a partisan way. And just um, for so, reference yeah. that the other one was um, Matt Ocko from New Zealand Growth Capital Partners. Sounds like a stand-up guy. <laughs> well, and, and what's better for uh, New Zealand growth than um, going into a war with uh, largest trading partners? <laughs> yeah, yeah, P- pulling out all our economy from China. Um, <laughs> yeah, great, great idea. Yeah, and I, I think you know National and Act have made a little bit out of this. Luxon pretty quickly accepted the apology, um, but then once Labor had turned, he was also calling for uh, Campbell's removal from uh, the Environmental Protection Authority. David Seymour in ACT was calling for resignation immediately. And then using it, going a little bit further in terms of the rhetoric uh, and saying that this is a tip of the iceberg, the entire public service is rife with leftists um, and we should clear the whole lot out, which is a pretty extreme view, actually. So good. This is why he's such a good politician. You have to give it to David Seymour, right? It's so good. Like, this is how you use, this is how you use a politically charged like tiny insignificant issue, which Branko correctly says, no one actually gives a fuck about this, right? This is a very boring <laughs> issue. But like 
that's how you turn it into a real issue is by saying this is actually the tip of the iceberg and the thing under the surface of the water is what you should all care about a scary inclement environmental issue with the entire way that our society functions and use that to shift the um overton window that's smart man that's what you should do like if this was a ceo a big banks ceo who'd said something like incendiary and racist on uh on the internet then leftists should use that as a lever to say look how awful these people are like this is the tip of the iceberg we need to destroy this entire sector like we need to take this on as a tactical measure not just as some boring individual like national backbench MPs were like, oh, you know, the Simeon Brown, Chris Pink position of like, oh, this specific guy, Rob Campbell, like he's problematic. This this one person needs to be taken off these boards. No one cares about that. These people are like <laughs> terrible politicians. This is what you do. You do the the David Seymour thing and you say, sure, this person should resign. But that's the very beginning of a whole conversation I want to start to destroy the entire public sector. Like you weaponize that to actually achieve your political goals. It's smart. It's like a fully ludicrous stance. I, I do want to be clear about that. Um, but here's, it's very clear that it's um, he's trying to pull the conversation. The idea, I mean, both the idea that the public service is rife with leftists um, and that the entire thing should be removed are very, very, like, radical right-wing ideas. Also, I mean, the idea that co-governance is some sort of radical, you know, <laughs> communist position, you know, something, something, which is basically what, what Seymour's trying to get at, um, is pretty absurd. I mean, this stuff was being done under the previous national government. This is a, uh, you know, when people actually understand what co-governance is, it's a pretty, again, fairly narrow technocratic thing that that um, there's been pretty, you know, quiet consensus on for a while. It's just now it's a useful, I, I think, you know, Campbell's right. I think it, it's a useful dog whistle at the moment um, for people that want to, you know, um, s- send a particular message without having to say Do a racism. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you know, stoke a certain amount of resentment and, you know, sort of appeal to some, some you know, some base kind of instincts uh, in, in society sometimes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Chris Finlayson uh, wrote a, a piece, I think this year, uh, defending co-governance and being like, yeah, it's really not that radical of an idea. So the idea that this is some sort of position that, that only uh, some, some uh, extreme minority uh, within government are pushing is kind of... Uh, well, not kind of. It's very, very ridiculous. Um, but as Philip said, this is uh, this is what politicians are meant to do. You're meant to, you know, use events like this as kind of um, moments to to turn the the, the conversation uh, onto your uh, particular political priorities, which is what Seymour's done. Um, you know, as as much as Seymour can be kind of a goofball sometimes, I think he uh, he shows in episodes like this that he uh, he knows more than you know. He knows what he's doing a little more than it seems. I think some where he doesn't know what he's doing though is in regards to the cyclone recovery. Uh, so ACT released a 15-point plan, um, just outdated, incredibly just out-of-touch policies uh, that they want to institute for cyclone victims. And it's, it's lucky he's nowhere near power right now because these are just out of the park. These are, like, disproved uh, for decades David Seymour uh, looked at the devastation caused by Cyclone and thought, wow, look at all these people suffering. How can we make them suffer more? Um, and props to him, he he found a 15-point plan to do it uh, and, and, and very quick order. So so congratulations to him. Yeah, it's, it's very like um, neoliberal orthodoxy from the 80s, like pure Thatcherism, like no, no kind of change 
adjusted based on like the context that we're in or any of the developments like even like neoliberal parties overseas that are kind of economically hard right have more nuanced positions on some of this stuff it, it reads like young act like writing a wish list after getting like halfway through atlas shrugged and being like this is too complicated <laughs> like this is i can't i can't make it to the end um, this is literally the stuff that liz trust came in on and yeah. got kicked out on almost immediately when yeah, people just saw how quickly and how badly it was going to go. It's funny how, like, we've talked about this for a while, but I think that the stuff where ACT is least convincing is on their, like, neoliberal, um, libertarian kind of economic plans. Like, the stuff that they pretend is the base of their party, the, the louder that part is, the less popular it is. Because no one likes it. Like, it's very unpopular stuff. This is, <laughs> like, no one's going to read this and be like, oh, maybe I should consider the ACT party. Like, this is support <laughs> to national. They need to get back onto like culture war issues where they actually have something to say that the media will enjoy. Although as usual act, um, it's, it's not really libertarian vision because yes, there's a bunch of giveaways to businesses to, to exploit um, New Zealanders at their absolute lowest. Um, so, you know, great, great work there, David. But uh, then on top of that, he goes, well, let's, you know, let's send the army in to <laughs> yeah, and this is like maintain domestic law and order, which is about, as extreme a uh, government uh, action uh, or intervention, in, and he gets in, away with liberty it. as you can as you can get. Like, yeah, it's yeah, completely so. at odds with what he's he's proposing now. Yeah. Like his his screaming to have um, martial law enacted down there mm. um, on the basis of like some of this crime narrative, um, and then comes out and says, "Cut all the red tape. Let's let's." <laughs> the term he's using is special economic zone. Um, which I guess previously uh, would have been called enterprise zones or free ports um, back when Thatcher was around. Um, like basically different rules for this area because of the, the disaster. He's saying it should last for about three years, but all the rules that he wants to instate are just terrible. It's like uh, get rid of the minimum wage, like give businesses more ability to like just just do things. So without regulation, which is probably something that you don't want in an area which has just been struck by a major climate disaster. Yeah, the free, um, and also the free uh, market. No, no fair pay agreements as well. I mean, that the, the two specific things you laid out that would be part of your special economic zones are, are, are low minimum wage and, and no fair pay agreements. So, you know, very nakedly an assault on uh, workers' rights, um, uh, you know, using this using this disaster. You know, again, one of the worst things that's happened to a lot of New Zealanders in their lives uh, to basically kick their mother down. Yeah, that's a, it's using the free market, right? Like saying, what if the free market were to save us from natural disasters? And, you know, famously, the free market lack of regulation is going to mitigate from the next disaster. Um, the main thing we need to do is deregulate the dikes. Um, and it'll, it'll naturally create enough resilience that People will be safe. Yeah, I mean, and, and we should you know, understand what these have actually meant in practice. Um, I mean, uh, they've been used for uh, the past few decades, usually in the developing world, by the way. Um, you know, so so uh, not not countries, wealthy countries that have you know fairly robust um, you know workers' uh, uh, rights laws and the like that New Zealand does. But but uh, uh, he's he wants to use that to basically to, to attract investment into New Zealand. Now the the actual reality of these. Um, is that they, they found, you know, in the UK where they were done, that what they did was they didn't really, you know, uh, attract investment from from overseas to come into, uh, into these areas. What they did was they siphoned off investment from 
surrounding areas, uh, which then went into uh, those particular economic zones. So what it really is, is instead of kind of being more competitive with the world, it's really just um, a race to the bottom within New Zealand um, that sacrifices one region of New Zealand for another. And in this case, um, the, the one that's, that, that, that you're know, supposed to reap these benefits is actually uh, seeing you know, a huge uh, a lowering of its, of its basic uh, you know, living standard. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's what's actually meant to practice. And then, I mean, you know, countries like um, Cambodia and the like that have, have used these economic zones, I mean, again, what that's actually meant is that uh, these places are, it's not just you know, specifically fair pay agreements, but these places are completely exempt from, from you know, basic uh, uh, labor laws around, you know, strikes and, 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 and another industrial action. I mean, I think in Cambodia, it was specifically uh, that, you know, these zones, that they're, they're managed as businesses. And as one of their rules is, you're not allowed to, to strike or do anything for, you know, however long the, uh, the, the zone is in place. So not only, you know, would workers there just be, ruthlessly exploited by whichever businesses decide to you know lick their lips and come in and take advantage of this giveaway by by seymour but um they wouldn't be able to do anything about it um and often what happens is these these workers that come in there they get uh used up uh and um you know uh, uh, worked to the bone until they can't go anymore and then they leave and then a new batch of workers comes in um it's all very well and good for the businesses again that are that are the main beneficiaries of this, but for the actual people who are meant to um, nominally who are meant to, to to be benefiting from this, it's absolutely disastrous on multiple levels. Max yeah. Harris had a um, a little thread about it today, which is worth a read. Uh, and one of the reasonably amusing, sad but amusing um, things he's chucked in there is this research briefing um, from the House of Commons in the UK. Uh, ironically, one of the things that the EU um, has noted about uh, these kind of zones is that their special tariff and duty status has aided the financing of terrorism, money laundering, and organized crime. Yeah. You, you know, they like, because it makes a, a place where you can kind of just get away with this stuff. Yeah. I mean, they the, the become almost many, you know, tax havens because they're exempt from every other rule, not just, you know, labor laws, but also rules around, you know, secrecy and the like. That that might exist in other parts of the country, um, yeah, it, it creates this incredible incentive for uh, uh, lawbreakers of all kinds to come in. I think the specific example that that they cited as well was, um, you know, that the looted artifacts, for instance, um, from war zones in, in the Middle East and Africa would just turn up uh, and sort of be, be parked there, basically, um, uh, to, to to get away from from you know any sort of um, you know legal oversight, essentially. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's what you'd expect, right? If you minimize the regulations, that's where shit's going to run downhill. That's where it's going to end up. Like, even in the short term, as you were saying, like, if this is meant to be a short term kind of uh, stop the bleeding measure for an area that's suffering, who's suffering more in that area? Like, let's acknowledge there's an internal conflict over resources. Is it workers who are currently on minimum wage or is it people who want to open a new outlet of their business? Like which which one of these groups needs more short term like imminent relief and acts obviously come down on the side of the business owner who wants to open a new uh, a new branch of whatever you know job creating industry whatever they disaster capitalism outlet they want to exactly a new a new disaster capitalism factory to start next to the river. Well, that brings us to our our third topic, which is some of the crime reporting out of here because 
you know, we're, we're talking about a particular kind of business crime in regards to what could happen with special economic zone, but some of that's already happening in regards to, uh, you know, wage theft, use of volunteers by businesses to, to do their cleanup, health and safety uh, issues as well. But what's getting reported is this almost moral panic-like uh, coverage of things like looting, which one seems out of touch. What uh, people are actually seeing on the ground with some of the police statistics, uh, but the media coverage has been so constant, and there have been a couple of examples where you know Hipkins or whoever have said they don't have information about something, and it's proved that actually that did happen. Uh, that Labour have had to walk that back and say, oh, maybe we were wrong about crime. Maybe it is rife down there, but it's still not rife as far as we know. What uh, is this just like the standard media operating procedure? Well, I mean, look, I mean, of course, there, there's looting and stuff. I mean, unfortunately, this is one of these things that happens in the wake of a disaster. Sometimes it happens, um, you know, for, for reasons that that make sense because people are having to survive. And and there definitely are also just unscrupulous people. Um, I mean, I know anecdotally I've, I've heard stories like that. Um, but we should also be clear that the, the particular thing that, that Seymour is proposing is a form of looting on a far bigger and more damaging scale um, than, than, you know, the stuff that we're hearing about, you know, in the, in, in the news and stuff. I mean, that, the only difference is this form of looting would be state sanctioned and it would be all done uh, legally. You know, because uh, you can completely change the laws. That's that's actually one of the brilliant things about the, the the special economic zone idea is that you know it's not illegal if you just change the law <laughs> to to make it not. Um, it's really uh, people need to uh, think about this ingenious um, uh, uh, scheme uh, a little deeper. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's one of these things. What kind of looting are we really focused on? Yes, is is there you know unfortunate crime and stuff and and. and Property theft and like that happens after disasters. Unfortunately, yeah, that's a that's a pretty common thing. Um, we shouldn't lose our heads about it. But let's also keep it into perspective because the stuff that's being proposed that's you know would be completely above board, quote unquote, is is I think far worse and more damaging for the region than just a few you know um, sneaky or or you know moral people kind of using this opportunity to 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 you know get something for free. Yeah, and this is this is always the problem. You know, the, the media is bad at proportion at the best of times. So whenever someone on the right will say there's a widespread or disastrous or endemic like looting after, you know, this happens after every major disaster in every country. This isn't a New Zealand thing or even a New Zealand media thing specifically. This happens constantly after every disaster. There's, you know, unsubstantiated reports of widespread looting. And then only after that does it come in a year the media will apologize for not having done their due diligence. And it's happened over the Christchurch earthquakes as well. This exact yep. thing. Um, rioting after a, basically any event, there's, you know, people report X. Like, okay, so now do your job. Like, look outside and tell if it's, if it's raining or not. No, we absolutely refuse to do that. We're, we're the media. All we can do is report, like, repost something we saw on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but then the problem with that from the other side is you can't sound too certain denying it either because before anything's confirmed it's not confirmed that's how reporting is meant to work right so then as hipkins said well i believe the police who haven't confirmed this or not and then Whoops. one of those reports did end up being correct and the police hadn't passed on up-to-date information and then he had to walk back his comments and say sorry i wasn't you know kept in the loop with what the information was 
but that doesn't translate into widespread looting. That's one instance of you know <laughs> of crime. But you know what's widespread? That's the that's the trick that the the media will love to continue to play. And it's very easy for the right to be like, this is an example of the widespread looting that we were talking about. And you can point to graphs all you want and say it's not widespread. This is actually down because property crime's probably down realistically, right? Most of these shops are closed. Like people are the house, like there's a whole bunch of houses that just have silt in them. People are bailing their houses out. They're not on the streets stealing stuff for the most part there are there are people on the street stealing stuff probably in smaller numbers than regular property crimes per week we won't know this until you know six months a year from now but most likely that's what it'll end up being but by then all the people who are crying about widespread looting will be crying about widespread looting after the next climate change induced disaster so they don't care one of the most frustrating things about the circular nature of this is you had like this rash of uh reporting like kind of driving this narrative uh, you know as we always do um, and then you had the pushback on it. Um, and then you had like national and the media saying, no, look, people are afraid of looters. So therefore we're right. Don't you want, don't you want to speak to the people? Why are you supporting these people who are afraid of crime? You can't deny the lived experience of one scared 65 year old woman. Carl. It's but like the whole thing is that it was convicted in the first place, right? Like they're using proof that their message or that the narrative well, it had an impact uh, as proof that the thing that they're saying exists, exists. Uh, and I don't know how we really get away with that, uh, away from that, without the media taking a bit more responsibility for the way that they manage these kind of conversations. I mean, to me, the question isn't about, you know, is they looting or not? I mean, it's completely unsurprising to me that, that there is in the wake of disaster, because this is unfortunately what happens after every kind of terrible thing like this um the question is is it is it that at such a scale is it so anomalous right now and, and such a problem that you know it justifies number one ginning up the kind of panic that they're trying to do for very obvious political uh motivations and number two to justify crazy things like sending the military um to keep order i mean the police i think have been pretty explicit saying that, that no you know that the, whatever's going on is not that bad there's enough enough you know police officers who can deal with it um uh so you know i mean uh, the, the the whole thing kind of uh, yeah small, small government except in cases of lethal force yeah <laughs> small government unless it's the particular uh, functional government that puts you in jail uh <laughs> takes away all of your rights in which case we should definitely enlarge that part of the government and even then i mean like I know this is kind of a trite point, but what makes anybody think that the military would be functional, like would have any ability mm. to enact this stuff? Like the military gets forced to do all the stuff they're not trained in at all. That cause so many more problems than they solve. Can you imagine like untrained, like police are already not trained enough. They don't, they don't have enough training already, like base level kind of beat cops constantly break like civil rights laws um, and get the cops sued or like overstep the amount of civil rights that they're covering in any case. Can you imagine military people with zero training in that stuff trying to fulfill that same function? Like it would, it would we're talking about like years in the courts of trying to redress all of these rights issues that would be inevitably like destroyed. The military- I don't know, but it's a special economic zone, Philip. So it was all legal. Report <laughs> <laughs> of yeah, East Coast. Um, but like the military already hated their role getting rung in to bloody look after COVID staying spots, right? And that was a much lower threshold in terms of like impinging on people's freedoms and being able to do certain things and not do certain things. 
And they're much closer to being trained in that than the degree of like nuance that you need to display protecting people from looting. Like it's not a war zone. It would it would cause so many more issues if you were to roll the the police the military out to do that. But I, I love that that was the that's the intersection of New Zealand first policy and act policy. Because Winston Peters was all, also saying send the army in, right? And those two are meant to be at polar opposites of like big government, small government. But it shows that shows the disingenuousness of that right wing kind of perspective, right? Because there's mean, very little light between those two perspectives, but they would like to pretend that there's this like values based disagreement that they have. Yeah. Well, yeah, rash and reckless calls to send the military to, to you know, take care of domestic issues is basically the kind of bread and butter of every, you know, lazy right-wing populist, uh, not just in New Zealand, but everywhere. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, if it's just one example, I mean, in the US, uh, old, you know, current President Joe Biden back when he was a senator, that was one of the, that was one of the things he was pushing to... Uh, uh, and, and criticized heavily for he was calling for you know uh, the military to be sent into domestic soil in the U.S. to deal with terrorists. Um, and everyone everyone's reaction to this was Jesus Christ, you know, calm calm the hell down. That's kind of insane. Um, even George W. Bush thought that was going too far. So you know, like like I said, uh, every lazy kind of you know person who wants to look tough, which often in our political discourse just means um, being the first out of the gate with the most stupid, uh, you know, but aggressive sounding proposal uh they jump on this kind of stuff um one thing that, that i did think was interesting in this whole discussion around crime and and, and you know looting post gabriel there's this ongoing i think i'll call it a panic uh in new zealand but but all over the western world and every kind of liberal democracy around disinformation and you know there's endless amounts of of, of ink and, and energy spent talking about how to prevent disinformation and the, and the terrible outcomes it has. And, and yeah, I'm not going to adjudicate whether or not this counts as disinformation or not. Um, that's a, it's a very elastic term that gets used uh, nowadays. But to the extent that it is, um, I want to note that the, the disinformation is not coming from the kinds of stuff that people usually talk about when they want to, you know, institute um, particular censorship regimes for the internet and so on and so forth. You know, people usually talk about tweets and facebook posts and youtube videos and so on and so forth i'm, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't exist that that you know might be um exaggerating or you know uh, uh focusing over focusing on, on some of the stuff that's happened after the cyclone for the most part this stuff is being pushed by establishment sources stuff that that would not get touched under any sort of you know disinformation censorship regime it's the national party it's act you know it's politics elected yeah elected politicians yeah news talks it'd be stuff the herald this is where all this stuff is coming from so if you disagree with it um you know i, I think it's it's i think this shows the weakness of kind of using these heavy-handed um uh, or relying on these heavy-handed kind of approaches to, to censoring stuff as a kind of solution to our to, to what are basically um political debates that you know unfortunately we just have to try and win um you know it's it's I'm, it, getting rid of all these like various facebook posts and stuff is not going to stop christopher luxon from and and whoever succeeds him from uh jumping on crime as a as a wage issue in an election you know yeah and and we've, we've talked about this for four years right <laughs> like but, but <laughs> 
the main issues uh, around the wrong information being given to the electorate or, you know, society are coming from established sources. The problem, part of the problem is that these sources have authority and so more people believe them. Um, and then they're just called political differences um, or they're just called opinions, you know. Um, I mean, okay. I mean, great, but it doesn't change the actual facts on the ground. Um, just quickly before finishing this one up, how, how many more times do we think David Seymour needs to take the mask off or be completely contradictory within the course of like two days before he stops being given just free reign uh, by the press? It's no limit. <laughs> <laughs> He's invincible. He can't be defeated. The only way to defeat David Seymour <laughs> is if, uh, establishment media have someone who's a better go-to. Like he's a he's a mouthpiece. He's a useful mouthpiece for them, right? It doesn't like what he does isn't the point. Like they need someone um, who churns stuff out. Will always have something to say. Is very available. Is like affable <laughs> and problematic enough to rile up readers. Gets hate clicks. Like he ticks so many boxes for them. Yeah, in a way that even like the less competent hard right national MPs just don't like he's he fulfills the perfect the perfect right wing niche for a New Zealand politician and does it like consistently day in day out does so many press releases like I don't think we can understate the importance of <laughs> personally doing press releases like it's it's become a, a joke to the New Zealand media but it's so useful like look how powerful okay. it is every day that when they talk to him he can say we just did a press release for us about like it's so powerful no it's true I mean look you have to think about this from the the, the press's point of view right if you're a reporter uh, I hate to break it to everyone but uh, reporting news is not a particularly glamorous uh, 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 lifestyle or enterprise um, often you are. Uh, uh, overworked, under the gun, you're, you're trying to meet a deadline, uh, you're rushing to uh, sometimes figure out what you even think about a particular subject because maybe you've been assigned to it and you have absolutely no background in it. And so, you know, you're writing a, a piece about whatever the latest controversy, whether it's about Gabrielle or uh, Three Waters or Rob Campbell or whatever. Um, you're right, you're, you know, you're, you're the most, the, the nut graph, you know, the most important stuff at the start. Then you need a comment from someone. You're looking around. Maybe you can't get someone on phone. Do you hey, need look, a comment David from someone? Seymour's, Do you need a comment from someone? David Seymour's released uh, 12 press releases <laughs> about this just in the last six hours. I will just take out a, a, a snippet of that and put it in. Um, boom. Bob's your uncle. Job's done. Um, do you need a comment? I mean, I, it's it's part of – this is just kind of part of um, – the way that that the, the you know reporting conventions, um, you don't necessarily no theoretically no you don't need a comment from anyone, um, but it, you know if you're working under an editor, um, I think they'll want you to to put something in there. And so again, you have to think about it from from the journalist's point of view. They want something quick at hand where they can point to and say, okay, here are the terms of the debate, um, and often those terms are framed entirely around um, what what different parties say. So you know, on the one hand, you got. Labour saying this, on the one hand, you got Act saying this, boom, I've got the polar opposites. If there's no one else who's throwing their hat in the ring to, to, to you know, reframe this issue in some other way or, or you know, talk about something else, then automatically you have um, now set the kind of spectrum of, of allowed uh, discussion around whatever the, the, the particular story is about. Boom, there you go. You know, in, in three minutes, I've explained to you the way that, uh, consent is manufactured and it's and it's the same reason that you know matthew hooden gets into media as much as he wants is because he's always on the phone and journalists mm -hmm. know they'll get mm -hmm. a quote from him quickly um and that it'll it'll fulfill the kind of narrative that they 
need. Like you're not going to need to go back to your philosophy textbooks to like interpret what it is that uh, any of these people are saying. Like this is all very much within the terms of how they already understand and constitute these debates. Like it's much harder work to come from the outside in and be like, no, I reject the premises of this relationship between the state and like the populace. They're they're not going to put that in their article, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I I I just wonder like how how willing they are to look like idiots by continually reprinting the stuff like it it, do, it does make them look bad and i think i think it is starting to get through to the electorate i i think people are seeing some of the stuff and going wait that is just a press release like what was what was your purpose here why like why did you do this why no, do you do exist they'll do it forever carl yeah this is on. listen th- this is ju- it's the formula for writing stuff it's it's here's what happened what do people think about it right here's what party, one person thinks here's about it. left-wing power you know you know, at least in, in the in the public's eye, left wing party. Uh, there you go. You got on both sides. Think about Rodney Hyde in the two thousands. Like there was no, think about there it. was no bottom. <laughs> there was no bottom limit to how ridiculous shit he could say. Hey, he's still he's still writing, right? He still gets pieces now and then. So does Preble. But as um, you know, in, as wearing a politician hat, it gives you extra license to say basically whatever you want and get taken up straight away if you're convenient <laughs> and if you're you know you're willing to churn out some trash. There's no. I don't think there's any bottom to that well you know you say that but i will say seymour's been smart to move away from his uh, predecessor's pro incest legalization position <laughs> i feel like that was not a particularly productive or uh, politically astute um piece of messaging from well it was too principled that was the problem right the less principled yeah. act gets the more powerful yeah, yeah. yeah. he's always moved away from the pro identity theft kind of stuff from his predecessors as well so pro dead baby identity theft positions that is bold <laughs> Look, the only reason Seymour has got so high is because he stands on the shoulders of giants, right? <laughs> Just quickly, last um, last topic for the morning. Make it 16. Bring the, the vote down um, to 16 years of age. Uh, Michael Wood has said, hey, maybe we'll go to a referendum. Um, people aren't particularly happy about that, uh, kind of talking about what happened with the uh, legalized cannabis referendum and what a failure that was. What do we think, 16-year-olds? I mean, I, you know, uh, there's there's definitely a case for it. Uh, look, I mean, people say, oh, 16-year-olds are not mature enough to be able to form you know, coherent political opinions. People of all ages and backgrounds have a variety of levels of political sophistication just because you're, you're you know, 50 years old does not mean that you necessarily have a a, a more informed uh, opinion about politics than than you know someone who's 16 or 17 or 18 for that matter um and and you know vice versa i don't think it really is this stuff isn't really a question of um so much of uh at what point are you someone who's able to make an informed political decision or have an informed political opinion it's more about who's included in democracy and whose um, who's, who's views, who has a stake in what's going on. And, you know, I think uh, if you're a 16-year-old, you definitely have a, you know, you're, you're looking at government in action on climate change, probably most of all, but also, you know, just generally entering a world where um, you have less opportunity, uh, everything's more expensive, it's hard to get housing, you are kind of thrown into debt at the very beginning of your adulthood. I, I think by virtue of the fact that those things affect you, you're going to have opinions about them in the same way that, you know, your ordinary voter may not have, you know, a, a super clear ideological framework through which they're analyzing every single thing, every single issue. But there's certain things that do affect them, you know, cost of living, 
the or, or you know the the the, the rise in rents um, and so on and so forth and they're going to have opinions about that because of the fact that they are having a direct impact in their lives. So, you know, I think it's a totally legit question. I, I think it makes sense. Um, and I think a, um, uh, 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 throwing it open to a, um, uh, a referendum, uh, I think is also the way to, to, you know, um, potentially maybe, maybe not settle this question, but certainly one way to kind of at least approach it. Cause you know, even if, if the vote fails, I don't think it's necessarily the, the end of the line for this question but but you know i'm uh that that's my kind of provisional thing at the moment i mean i'm, I'm open to uh to changing my mind i don't know what you guys think uh yeah substantively yeah you're right i think you know the more people think about 16 year olds voting as a special case i think that's kind of thinking about it the wrong way around like i think the reason that 16 and 17 year olds should be able to vote is because they're not special like they also have an investiture in the future just like people in their 20s and 30s 40s 50s and 60s 70s do they're not special humans with like magical imbued properties that are going to save us that idiots like all the rest of us with like <laughs> terrible schemas and you know malformed politics that don't really make any coherent sense and that's fine like that's all that democracy is um as soon as you've talked to someone in their 50s and try to sway their vote you'll you'll see why you know it can't be that much worse to do that to someone who's 16 or 17 <laughs> um people aren't uh coherent political actors like you're saying the only kind of objective line i think you can draw is how young people interact with institutions so I'd say 16 is too old. Like I'd like to see people start voting 13 or 14 so that that can be part of the high school process because the vast majority of people go to high school. And then once that's part of people's lives, that can become a habit to try to pick up some of our decreasing kind of voter engagement. Um, I think that's probably a more coherent argument than picking another arbitrary age, like why 16 as opposed to 18. There's no great answer to that. Um, some people have left school by 16. So I feel like 13 is a kind of safer line to start. But it doesn't really matter, basically, right? You're, you're starting voting somewhere and trying to push it, push it upwards. And then in terms of the politics of it, I don't have anything inherently against a referendum. But like Kyle's saying, if they're going to treat it with the same hands-off way that they treat, treated the um, marijuana referendum, it's going to get tied to the Labour government regardless. National's going to vote against it. It's much less popular than legalising marijuana will be. It'll get massively defeated at a referendum and probably at the government for even considering making it a referendum. So it seems like a pretty short-sighted way of treating it to me. Um, I will say that if people think uh, lowering the voting age will be a, a panacea for basically all our, our problems in politics, um, I think if that's the the reasoning behind this, um, that, that you really should should steer clear of that because I don't think it's going to be. Um, I mean, you know, people have this hope that because the, the younger generation at the moment is, you know, from the whole, it seems, you know, more progressive than suddenly our generation and, you know, the generations before us, that that'll, you know, mean that, that this will kind of give the wind the sails to progressive force in society, potentially, potentially in this particular case, but it's not always the case. I mean, in the, in the 80s, um, uh, and not just in New Zealand again, I mean, this is all over the world. It was actually younger people who tend to kind of favor, um, you know, some of these neoliberal uh, reforms. I think now we, we look back on and we go, oh, that was a goddamn disaster. But um, that was kind of seen as that was a, more of a generational shift. It was actually the older generations who were, who were vehemently against the kind of stuff that happened, you know, under um, Roganomics um, and, and young people who supported it, uh, who saw it as a sort of modernizing force. So all that is to say that, that again, um, generational kind of politics is not any sort of inevitability or, or, you know, it does not only go in 
one direction, the direction that we wanted to go. Um, so, you know, I, I think if you're going to support this or whatever stance you're going to take on it, um, I think have that in mind. There, there should be some other principle behind this other than just sort of political expediency because I don't think it's necessarily going to yeah. work out in the long term necessarily. I think the thing we always need to keep in mind as progressives or on the left is that there's no real quick fix for progressive politics. There's nothing that we can do to they just suddenly flip the flip the polls, right? It's all about organizing. It's all about community building. I think you know if people are more engaged earlier on, that that can lead on to better organizing, better community building, uh, better engagement with the civic process. Um, but we're talking mid to long term stuff there. Uh, it's you know, you as you say, Branko, you might get um, a good result one year, you might not the next. Yeah, I, a lot of it, I think you're right. People tend to think of these things as panaceas or like, um, yeah, electoral opportunities. They aren't necessarily that. Well, remember, I mean, generations, particular politics, are, uh, they don't just, you know, aren't better or different because, you know, there's something inherently different about younger people. It's, it's the particular conditions that they came up in. Um, and I think the particular conditions, yeah, I know I, I listed a bunch of them, you know, all this terrible stuff that the young people nowadays have to sort of go into. I think all of that pushes them naturally into kind of more progressive positions and a wide variety of stuff, climate, but also social issues. Um, but, you know, conditions change all the time. And so, you know, just be aware that today's uh, progressives and liberals, uh, you know, could be tomorrow's reactionaries. And that's totally fine. That's part of the the, the process of democratic participation is that uh, people are going to uh, make choices that you don't like, but, but you have to, if you, if you're going to, you know, do something like this, you have to keep in mind that, that, yeah, that, that is a possibility that, you know, don't just do it because you're like, Oh, this is, just, this is going to be great for me and, and, and the stuff I want to do. And it'll be like that forever. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, in uh, Brazil and in, in countries that have had reasonably successful welfare states in the last 30 years, um, it's been interesting to see the swing back to reactionary politics from young people in particular. Like a lot of the Bolsonarismo in Brazil was heavily carried by young people. Um, and the Gen Xs were going, what the hell happened? Like we thought young people would be getting more progressive than us. And there are these terrifying kids running around with, you know, basically neo-fascist kind of talking points that have been normalized. This stuff can happen. It can come and go, right? Scary. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's us for another week. Thank you for joining me. Cheers, Carl. And if you've enjoyed this, uh, we've got the Patreon link down below. Uh, share it around. Give us five stars. Give us a review. Um, and, yeah, keep supporting uh, independent left media. We'll catch you next week. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full the relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism Capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no